Hi, this is Don Anderson, and I'm the host of Missing Pieces and P.E. Life. This is Season 2, Episode 6, Pat, a Birth Mother. Hey, everybody. I don't know if you've heard of Severance Mag. It's an online MPE magazine. Well, it's for MPEs, donor-conceived, and adoptees. It's for all of us. Recently, I wrote a short story called That Night. It's a fictional account of what may have happened the night my mom and bio dad got together. Check it out. And you can find it at severancemag.com. Actually, last episode, I said my wrong Instagram account. It's NPE underscore life underscore podcast. So it's NPE underscore life underscore podcast on Instagram. You can get in touch with me there. If you look on Instagram, you can see that my homemade pop filter that I had in the studio that I'm using right now as I talk. And what a pop filter is, is something everybody should have that's on the radio or on a podcast, and it stops the P's from popping. And I think F is another. Anytime your lips come together, when you make a sound, a consonant sound, that possesses the chance of it popping a puff of air into the microphone. And so our guest today is named Pat Pearson. This is with the pop filter, Pat Pearson's podcast. This is without the pop filter, Pat Pearson's podcast episode (laughs) without a pop filter. That's why you need a pop filter. But even on NPR, since COVID especially, there's so many people that don't have pop filters or in an echoey room. And I mean... I don't know. I have this audible thing where I just, it drives me crazy. Like echoey rooms, tinny sound, uh, not having a pop filter just bugs me. So I always try to have one. As you know, I like getting all sorts of different points of views on this program. And today I'm very excited because for the first time I have a birth mother. Well, a birth mother that <laughs> has given her consent, lest we forget Jeff Frame's famous episode. Who could forget that one, right? But today's um, show is a little different. I sought out Pat, and I think you'll see why. I think it's very interesting to hear that side of the story. Uh, Pat Pearson. I live in Chandler, Arizona. I have to say, Pat is one of those people, I don't know if anybody's ever experienced this, but I loved her immediately when she came into the room. Like, we really hit it off. And um, so I want to thank her for interviewing with me. It was difficult, as you'll hear. And I don't just mean difficult as an emotional, although that is what I meant. But as you'll hear, I apologize. We ended up interviewing. I was in Arizona for a wedding, and so we made plans for her to come to the hotel and I had this whole room set up downstairs and then they were doing construction in the hotel lobby and I was told the construction would stop when I was interviewing and I started interviewing and the construction didn't stop and when I complained they said oh there's no way we can stop the construction so it isn't that bad but you'll hear it now and then this story I'm telling you right now it has a twist in the story There's no way you're going to see the twist coming. It's that big. So it's 1964 when Pat begins her story. I was in high school, and I was raised Catholic. I was in a Catholic high school, and I transferred 
to a public high school, and it was quite large, and I had my first boyfriend that year. I was 18 years old. Of course, we were in love, and I ended up getting pregnant, and the boyfriend wanted nothing to do with me after that. And I just was kind of lost. I didn't know what to do. And because Pat was 18, even though she was still in high school, she was able to go to the doctor without her parents knowing about it. Went to the doctor, told the doctor I wanted to have the baby. And his nurse was there, and she said I could stay with her so I wouldn't have to live with my family. I had a part-time job in a, like a soda fountain place, and I could keep working there and I could still go to school, keep the baby, and figure out what to do. Now, I look back at it, and that could have been something horrible. You know, who knows? They weren't baby farmers or something, you know. I have no clue. I was just very naive. Then I went home and told my family the situation, and my mother told my father, and then my father called his sister's in California, and the next day I was in California. So, yeah, the next day, Pat got in her dad's car and they drove to L.A. from Phoenix. It was a long, silent drive across the bleak desert. Most silent drive ever. (laughs) My father has two sisters, or had two sisters, and they both lived in California. One lived in the San Fernando Valley, and one lived in... in, uh, Ventura County. And he contacted them and told them my situation. And I went and stayed with one aunt for a couple of months. And then I stayed with the other aunt for a couple of months while they made arrangements uh, for the home that I was going into, the unwed mother's home down in LA. And due to financial reasons, I stayed with the aunts during that time. And again, they made the arrangements, so I don't know. Maybe I couldn't go in until I was further along. So the home that her aunt and maybe her dad chose was called St. Anne's Maternity Home in Los Angeles, California. And it's run by the Catholic Charities. I think it's called Holy Family Services. And she went in to the home when she was seven months pregnant. I was there for a little while. And then as you progress in your pregnancy, you move from a group area into a house with other girls that were as far along as you. You were more, you were freer, didn't have as much restriction. It was run by nuns, yes. And I know that to my recollection, the doctors were volunteer and we all were talking about what doctors we wanted to deliver our babies because we heard horror stories about some of them, you know. They had big hands and you didn't want them to deliver the baby and this one was rude or rough or whatever. So, And if they're true or not, you still hear these things and it puts fear into you. But uh, for the most part, it was for that type of situation, it was as enjoyable as could be. They did uh, further education for you so that you had an occupation when you left if you wanted. I went to, I don't know what it was called, but I learned to be a checker at Vaughn's grocery store, you know, and you had to, you learned how to weigh and 
do all that so I could go to work if I wanted to when I left there. They made, and I don't know if that was the only option or what. You know, I don't remember the group part of it very much. I just remember the house because we all tried to make the best of it and we were like roommates. You know, we had fun and we'd do things we weren't supposed to do. We were like little high school kids being rebellious. You know, so it was like a bunch of sisters in a sorority house, so to speak, but we were all pregnant. <laughs> I think all the girls helped each other get through whatever the situation was. Although Pat felt very close to the girls at the time, she doesn't remember any of their names. Well, except for one. I, I do remember one, and whether this is, again, I've thought about this for a long time, Maureen McGovern, and I don't know... If, because there was the name McGovern, and we were thinking she was, I don't know if it was a political or maybe in the movie industry, we were thinking, oh, she's their daughter, you know, here's this famous person in here too. But no, I don't remember any of their names, and I, I never kept in touch with any of them. I did have some good friends there for what it was worth, you know, at the moment. But I think a lot of... Us wanted to just not remember. I think guilt, the guilt and the shame. I know they give you a, a month after you have your child. They don't want you to hold it or see it after you have delivered. And I did, but I insisted on that. But they give you a month. You sign your papers and then you go home. And after a month, you can't change your mind. But it's like the buyer's remorse kind of thing. You sign the adoption papers and then you have a month to change your mind. Oh, really? And where is the baby in that time? At the adoption agency, I, oh, wow. I guess. But you don't see the baby in that month? No. But you're both at the same place? No, I came home. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I came home right away, within a couple of days. Well, as soon as they'd let me out, my dad was there to pick me up. So when you had the baby, how long did you get to hold her for? Not very long, just a few minutes. And then when I got home, I literally sat. Back then, it was the telephones that had the long cord, you know, and I sat on the floor with the phone. You know, just debating, was I going to call and go to California? And then I had to figure out how would I do that? You know, what would I do if I did that? How would I live? And what would the child do? You know, how would they survive? So I just, I sat there with a lot of hesitation, you know, but giving it an awful lot of thought to what the future would be like and Never did call. That's such a huge weight on the shoulders of a high school student. Yeah. You know, it's tough. And the shame of that back then was... Well, Catholics are good at that, too. I, I remember that that was the thing with... I don't know if it was just Catholics, because that was what I was most exposed to. Um, if a girl was gone for any amount of time, you knew she was pregnant and whisked away, and then she came back. And 
nobody said a thing. It was just the norm, you know. After I gave the baby up for adoption, uh, I had a lot of resentment towards my father. You know, I, I being forced to do something without discussing and everything. So anyway, I went back to school. I was in my senior year. I went back to school and I decided I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to stay there. So I went and got a job and saved up some money and I moved to California. And I stayed there with my sister for a while. I worked at Bank of America and I told them I graduated from high school. I was a, a big girl walking down Wilshire, Wilshire Boulevard with all my dress-up clothes. And after three months, they checked on me. You know, they checked all my credentials. And I thought, how dare you? And they fired me for lying because I said I graduated from high school. You know, so I had to come home, put my tail between my legs, and I came back and lived with my dad for a while. And... Uh, Got another job, saved up my money. I got my GED and moved back to California. And I, I stayed at the beach for a while. And I don't remember what I did for work, but eventually I moved to San Francisco and stayed there for a while. And in the meantime, met my future husband in L.A. So I stayed in San Francisco for about a year and then moved down to L.A. and ended up getting married. This was in a span of about two years after having given up the baby. Yeah, I, I had a daughter, and she lives in Arizona now. And then I, I was pregnant. I worked for Pacific Bell, and I was pregnant. And then my husband decided he didn't live very well in high school. He didn't do much and, and had no social life and missed out on a lot, so... Uh, after about three and a half years of marriage, we got divorced, and I moved back with my dad again. <laughs> but I was pregnant at that time, and I ended up losing the baby and filed for divorce for that business, and that was that. So your daughter is um, that you had with him, is that the only other child you had? No, I have two other daughters. Uh, I married a man in the Air Force after I moved back here. Um, he didn't adopt my oldest daughter. He wanted to, but she didn't want to. And when we were dating each other, he was in the Air Force, and they all liked to party a lot and everything, and I got heavy into drinking. We got married. I forget what year let's say maybe 73, something like that. And I really started drinking a lot. And we had two daughters. And I just was, by then, I was a raging alcoholic. And that caused my divorce. He couldn't cope with that, you know. It was a matter of willpower, you know, and... So I, I stayed drinking for quite a few years after we 
separated. And now in September next year, I'll have 30 years sobriety. I went to seven rehabs. The last one I went to was Salvation Army, and I put myself in in a six-month program. And I sublet my apartment to a counselor that was there. And, um, yeah, it was 12 women in a, in a home, and you live there and you work for them. You work at the thrift stores, you know, so you, you earn, you know, your living there. And they give you a job when you get out if you want to. So Pat got sober then and still remains sober today, and she went on about her life and, um, and as a much-changed person. And one thing that happened with the adoption is if you wanted to be able to be found by your child that you gave up, you had to let them know. And so Pat had done that. I don't know what time frame, maybe a year after I had the, my baby, I sent them a letter saying I was available to be found and contacted if my child ever looked for me. They said you had to do that so you would be on record. And I did that. I sent all the information. And so every relationship I was in, anybody I was involved with, I always told them I had a child, you know, because you don't want somebody knocking on your door if you're a political person or a figure of some influence, you know, and having your life exposed and whatnot. So I always told every man I was involved with, you know, that I have a child that could come knocking on the door someday, or I might get notification. So that never happened for a long time. And then about 30 years after she gave birth to her daughter, who she had named Jamie, she got a phone call. So I'm living in Sedona, and I was. it was after work, and I get this phone call, and my daughter says, are you sitting down? And I said, no, what, do I need to be? And she said, well, we found Jamie, and that's what I had named her when she was born. We found Jamie. And I said, what do you mean you found Jamie? And she said, well, I met her sister. She happened to live in the same town, like in the same neighborhood, just down the street. They had both been... I didn't know how this worked out, but they had my information and Michelle, the Jamie and her family had my information that I was the birth mother and somehow Michelle got contacted with them through the internet, some site they were on, and Michelle called me and I just said, wow, you know, I didn't, I was taken back. My daughters arranged for this big party at their house for me to meet her. So I think this is one of those situations where everybody had the best intentions. Pat's three daughters that she had raised got together with Jamie's family and arranged this party where Jamie's family was going to come out to, from California with her sister, her adoptive mom, boyfriends, and that kind of thing. And they all came to Pat's middle daughter's house for a party. As you'll see, it's probably not the best atmosphere for a mother and daughter in this situation to meet for the very first time. And just a note here, Pat named her child she gave up for adoption, Jamie. But her adoptive parents gave her the name of Eileen. 
I, I think I was there before Eileen or before Jamie came in. And it was just my girls, their kids, you know, some of my grandchildren, and Jamie's family. And there were probably about six of them. And it was just we didn't say anything or do anything. We were just in shock. There was 30 years of emotion you know, just coming up at, at one time, and then you see all these people that you don't want to have this private conversation or a, a meeting with somebody explaining your vulnerability, you know, and what you went through, exposing yourself like that to people you don't know would understand. It was all done with good intentions and with love. You know, but not knowing the emotional attachment to all of it, you know, that it would bring it up. Thank God I was sober. So Pat and Jamie were able to have a quick conversation that day. Probably about five minutes. She's a very quiet, reserved child um, or adult. And I did tell her that I had been on the list to be found, you know, for years. And at that time, you really couldn't search for somebody. You just had to make yourself, because the records aren't available. If if somebody was looking, you have to write in, and they have to write in. And then if they see two, the match, then they let you know. We have a match. We've had activity on your file. And... I told her, I said, during a lot of those years, you would not have wanted to know me, you know, because I was drinking. And I wouldn't have been a person you wanted to know, you know, but I I am now somebody I think you would love to know, you know. And we, we kept in contact, but there was just something holding her back for forever, you know, she wasn't, she loved to hear from me. It was all kind of one-sided. She loved to hear from me. And she said, I like reading your emails. I'd write her emails all the time. And she'd never respond. To find out why Eileen may have not have bonded with Pat, stay with us on Missing Pieces, MPE Life. We'll be right back after a break. Well, one night I I couldn't sleep, and it was about the last week of July, and I thought, I'll check my email, and I checked my email, and there was an email from someone I didn't recognize, and I opened it up, and she was asking me questions, and I wasn't going to respond because it was very personal information. Did I know this person, Eileen? And I said, well, Eileen, I've got sisters and aunts named Eileen. I said, Eileen who? You know, and uh, I can't remember some of the other questions on there, but I wanted to find out who this person was. So she gave me her credentials, and she is a counselor in California. And she gave me other names that I recognized, and so I 
talked with her on the phone after checking her out. My name is Krista Driver, and I am the CEO of Mariposa Women and Family Center. And what I do is uh, essentially administrative work at Mariposa, but I also do clinical work, which means I'm a licensed therapist, and I do take on a caseload. But I'm very specialized in what I work with, which is MPEs, adoptees, donor-conceived, anywhere in the spectrum of MPEs. Krista is also an MPE. She calls herself a double whammy. And I'm a double whammy. I'm an adoptee and an MPE. So I was adopted. When I met my biological mother, she told me Michael was my father. So I met him, his family. And then 20-something years later, I took a DNA test just out of curiosity. And my DNA showed somebody else as my biological father. I met Pat through Eileen. About a year ago, I'd actually been working with Eileen's sister, Jolene, and helped her with her journey, her uh, discovery, and then worked with Eileen. Eileen had taken a DNA test, and part of what I do in my uh, my work is I help people navigate their DNA, um, analyze it. If there's living relatives to find, I help them and assist them in finding those living relatives. So Eileen initially came to me to help her you kind of decipher her DNA and her matches. Yeah, just simply to look at, you know, her heritage and kind of help explain uh, the the breakdown on Ancestry.com. It was just that simple. She already knew who her biological mother was. She knew who the father was. It was just to help her kind of, you know, just um, understand her breakdown of percentages on the centimorgans with uh, and, and heritage. So Eileen knew from Pat, who she's known between 25 and 30 years at this point, that her dad, her bio dad, was Hispanic. We anticipated that she would be at least 50% Hispanic because that was the biological father's heritage. And when I looked at her DNA, there was no Hispanic anywhere in her DNA. And so something was immediately off. I just wasn't quite sure what it was. I contacted Pat and said, hey, I'm working with Eileen, and can you tell me more about the biological father? Because I'm not seeing any Hispanics show up. Is there a possibility there was somebody else? (laughs) And uh, she said no. She was for sure that the biological father was the biological father. And in the meantime of contacting Pat, there was some, some delays. It took her some time to get back to me. In the meantime, I kept working with Eileen's DNA, on the paternal side, and I figured out who the paternal father was and was able to make contact with living relatives on that side. So that was kind of happening in tandem. A lot of things were happening at the same time. And so in my work, which was unpacking that DNA, looking at the matches uh, and finding living relatives, I discovered who he was. He's passed away, so I couldn't get information from him, but I did discover a half-brother to Eileen in that process and learned about their family. And so from there, I went to Pat and said, Hey, Pat, the guy you said was the father is not the father. It's this other guy. Do you know him? And she did not recognize the name. She didn't know who he was. She swore it was her high school boyfriend was the, was the father. And so I knew there was a discrepancy I just didn't know where 
exactly that was because Pat was totally convinced it was her boyfriend that was the father. So then we didn't really know where to go. Yeah, initially I thought Pat was just mistaken. Maybe she went to a party. Maybe she hooked up with some guy I didn't remember, didn't recall. Uh, I had that, that doubt. But she was very convincing that it was her high school boyfriend. That was the only guy she'd been with. So a lot of times when you're researching something, you know, and you just can't figure something out, and you're just deep in the frustration and, and agony, out of nowhere, the answer comes. That was there all along. It's kind of like me and Wordle every day. So Krista had the same experience when it came to figuring out the mystery of Eileen's DNA. What I do for people is I, I build them a test tree with their genetic matches on it. And there was a whole group of people that I couldn't place in the tree. And I couldn't figure out how they fit. I think it was just this this moment, this moment of clarity that I had was, oh my God, Pat's not the mother. That was the only explanation I could come up with. So in the same time I'm figuring out, Pat's probably not the biological mother. Maybe it's this other family that I can't place anywhere. And so I began to seek out living relatives on that side and did make a connection to a young lady in Rhode Island. And from there, I was able to definitively, for sure, know that Pat was not the mother and it was this other woman named Barbara. So Krista was faced with the daunting task of letting Eileen know that both of her bio parents were deceased and she had to call Pat and let her know that Eileen was not her daughter. I talked to her and she informed me that at the urging of one of her sisters, Eileen did a DNA test and it proved she was not my daughter. After 30 some odd years. You know, this is gonna sound very odd because we really didn't have a relationship but for about a month, I was literally emotionally paralyzed. I was just shocked because it was opening everything up all over again. And the deeper I got into it, the worse it got. In, in my mind, and, and as it turns out, on Eileen's end, her biological parents are deceased. So I was very angry about that because she has no chance of ever meeting them, nor do they have any chance of ever meeting her. But as it, it took me a, a long time, and Krista really helped me. You know, we'd talk to each other on the phone. So Pat did take a test. We sent her a kit. She took it. So she definitively has her answer that she's not Eileen's daughter, Eileen's mother. Uh, you know, which of course was very difficult. She already had the trauma of being a young girl sent away to have her baby 
to give it up for adoption. And she didn't want to give it up for adoption. She wanted to keep the baby. But at that time, it just, that's, that's kind of a common story. And so she already had that trauma. And then to find out that the woman she thought was her daughter for the last 25, 26 years wasn't, and that her own biological daughter was out there somewhere, it was devastating for her. And she really struggled. And, you know, I just held space for her to uh, grieve, to be angry, to, you know, kind of reconcile within herself, just to be available for her uh, if she needed someone to talk to. I'll get back to the story in a minute, but I first wanted to point out to you that if you're a type of person that likes community, likes being with other MPEs, likes learning and growing and processing your feelings, High Wraith Healing offers retreats. And it's run by one of my good MPE friends who's been on the show, Aaron Cosentino. So they have two retreats coming up, one in New Jersey that's going to take place in April and one in Texas, which is going to take place in July. And registration's open for both. So head to HighReathHopeAndHealing.com, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. And now back to the story. So now I know who the biological mothers are. I know who the biological father is. And so then I went to Holy Family, which is the adoption agency that Eileen was adopted out of, and tried to get information from them. And they were really, really difficult uh, to work with. They were um, not helpful at all. And uh, it was hard. It was hard to get answers from them, which we never really did get answers from them. One thing that I really like about Krista, and it kind of reminds me of me, is that once she sets her mind to something, there is no stopping her. She is not going to stop until she finds the answer. So Barbara was passed away already at this point. We couldn't obviously talk to her. Um, interesting, I went to her obituary, Barbara's obituary, and in the comment section, a gentleman had commented that his mother was best friends with Barbara, and they went to nursing school together, and he had great memories and fond memories of her. And so I tracked him down, and I emailed him, and he said, yes, my mother was best friends with Barbara. Um, maybe she'll talk to you. And so he put me in touch with his mother, who's still alive, who's in her 90s, and I was able to talk with her. Her name is Mary. And Mary and another lady and Barbara all lived together in Los Angeles at the time that Barbara got pregnant, and they knew that she went to, uh, it was called St. Mary's, which was like a home for unwed mothers, but it's also a hospital, and that's where she gave birth. Quick note here, Krista refers to the place as St. Mary's throughout this interview, but in actuality, it was called St. Anne's. St. Anne's, St. Mary's, what's the difference? So they were aware. So they're the ones that filled in that piece for us, uh, these two best friends of Barbara. Uh, But what are the chances of finding these women? That's how you have to look, right, when you're doing these, these searches. I oftentimes look at at city directories. I look at voting registrations. I look at census records. Uh, So there's a lot of information you can get, but you really have to dig. But these two women, when I contacted them and talked with them, they were so happy to know that Eileen was doing well, that she had a good life, that uh, they always wondered what happened to that baby. So it, it brought some healing for them as well, which was nice. You know, Barbara's family didn't even know she had a baby. 
So the only ones that knew were those two best friends. She never told her her siblings. She never told her parents. Nobody knew. And so here I show up all 50-something years later and want to know about the daughter that she gave birth to, and they didn't have any idea. They were really fantastic about it. I mean, they were very nice about it and, um, you, you know, great people, but they were shocked. She never told anybody except those two best friends. You know, it's the craziest story. What I learned from these friends that were her best friends, one of the one of the roommates, best friends, was going to go on a blind date with this guy, and she ended up getting sick. So Barbara went instead, and Barbara got pregnant. Like, it was literally like a one night they had a date. She got pregnant. Yeah. On a date she wasn't even really supposed to go on, but she went in her friend's place. Yes, so the way this worked is uh, Los Angeles, 1965, was the year that these women were born. Uh, It wasn't uncommon for families to send their daughters or pregnant daughters to these homes for unwed mothers, pregnant women, girls. So they went to, it's called St. Mary's, and it's in Los Angeles. And that's where they both gave birth to their babies, Barbara and Pat. And St. Mary's then would hand the babies over to Holy Family that then would adopt them out to other families. That's how Eileen came to be with her adopted family. So it's two entities, but they worked in collaboration together uh, within the adoption industry. It kind of has that feel, though, of being like trafficking babies, you know, these and and Pat's parents had to pay. So the girls got sent to St. Mary's. The families had to pay St. Mary's to house them, board and feed. And then they had their babies. And then Holy Family essentially sold those babies to a family like they would get twenty five thousand dollars or whatever it was per baby. So it kind of has that feel. I looked up Holy Family's 990s, their tax records, and I went way back, way back uh, to see what was their revenue. And you know, and they were making quite a bit of money in this. So it, it was an industry. It was a business. And it kind of makes you, kind of leaves that taste in your mouth of like, were they just selling babies? Um, And so my work was not finished with Eileen, and I set out to find Pat's biological daughter. I got my DNA and turned it in, and uh, we waited and waited, and I made her, I don't know what you call it, I gave her access, full access, so she could go on and check and and do whatever. Um, Well, I didn't have to do much because when Pat's DNA test came back, she had some matches on there that were high matches. And one of them turned out to be her grandson. So his mother is Pat's biological daughter that was given up for adoption out of Holy Family in 1965. And the babies were born both on the same day, right? They were born on the same day, yes. Pat gave birth at 2-ish in the morning, and Barbara gave birth at 3 in the afternoon. But on their birth certificates, Eileen says uh, two in the morning and the other one 
most likely says three in the afternoon. So they literally switched the babies. They switched the records. They were switched. As it turns out, the biological mother of Eileen did not want to be found. We both gave birth the same day. I don't remember her, uh, but the dates were the same. The times were different. One was morning, one was night. But my real biological daughter was told, she, she tried to find me twice, and she was told, there's no activity. Your, your birth parents don't want to be found. And so that young lady went through life thinking her mother rejected her by giving her for adoption and then rejected her again by not wanting to be contacted. When the reality is, Pat wanted to be contacted. She wanted to know who her daughter was. So it, it just snowballs. You know, there's more and more people affected by this. And who knows what could have transpired, you know? Well, I just wonder how lives would have been changed. And I can't keep thinking like that, but there's an element of anger, you know, and and how many other people have this happened to, you know? It's, I mean, it's, it's a soap opera episode of sorts. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. So speaking of not the only one, if you or anybody you know has been to St. Anne's and had a baby there and had similar experiences, please contact me on Instagram at MPE underscore life underscore podcast. I'd like to thank Pat Pearson for coming on the show today and telling her story. I know it wasn't easy at times. And, you know, maybe we'll have her back for a future episode about meeting her grandkid and also maybe by then her birth daughter. And thank you, Dr. Krista Driver of the Mariposa Center for coming on today. And thank you for all you did to help Pat and Eileen figure this one out. And thank you in general for all you do for the MPE community. It's really appreciated. And a shout out to all the people I knew from Krista's group. You guys were great. I would love to help other people that are looking or um, especially if they've done DNA. There's some DNA to work with. Um, Yeah. I'll put a link on the show notes. That's what it's called. (laughs) You should know these things. I know, right? This is called a podcast, I think. All right. Well, Krista, thank you so much. It was good to see you and great to talk to you. And thank you for all you've done for me. Well, it's my pleasure. You're one of my favorites. Did you hear that, everyone? Straight from the doctor's mouth. I'm one of her favorites. And I'd like to thank Billy Sullivan of Sully Stone Music for all the music on today's episode. Hasn't it been amazing? If you're looking for music for your podcast or whatever, go to sullystone.com. Missing Pieces MPE Life was written, produced, and edited by me, Don Anderson. Please share this podcast with a friend. And also, if you could rate us, follow us, that would be amazing. Thank you so much for everyone who's left reviews. I love, love, love hearing from you guys. Thank you.